This is eSports Today with Rob Zachney and Andrew Gruen. Welcome to this edition of eSports Today for December 8th, 2015. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, alongside Andrew Gruen, here to cover the latest news and events in eSports. On today's show, Riot are making major changes to Korean League of Legends, but have some people asking, who gave you the right? We also have a new look Team Liquid Dota team taking home the title at the defense uh, over Frankfurt Major winners OG. But first, we were up late this weekend watching the end of the Capcom Cup Street Fighter IV Championship where Kazunoko defeated Daigo to become the final Ultra Street Fighter IV Capcom Cup champion. Uh, Andrew, I'm the fighting game newbie here, but even I've heard of Daigo's name sure. for like literal ages. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So does does Kazunoko have the same standing within the game? Uh, you know, when when we were looking at this tournament, w- was this the finals pairing that people were predicting, and did the outcome sort of match expectations? Yeah, you know, Kazunoko was the one that probably he was probably one of the least known players in the tournament if you don't really follow fighting games. But to the connoisseurs of the scene, this is not really all that surprising at all. So I would say that it's definitely not the outcome that people were expecting, uh, but it's also not something that anybody is really surprised by. Kazunoko uh, is very he's he's well known and he's a highly capable player. he just barely finished, uh, barely missed finishing in the top eight at Evo this year, for, which is clearly a big accomplishment. Uh, but he's not one of the big names that everybody gets distracted by. People tend to get very focused on uh, Daigo, who you mentioned, and uh, Infiltration, uh, who I believe is a South Korean player who has been pretty dominant in, in, in 2014 and has sort of legend carried over in 20, into 2015 as well. Uh, and they, they forget about these sort of like workhorse players who like toil away in the Japanese and Taiwanese arcades where really the 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 prime talent in the world goes to congregate and practice. And so they're very well known inside of those small little scenes, but they're relatively obscure uh, to the rest of the world. So Kazunoko is one of those people. He has been at times, the number one ranked player in the Japanese Ultra Street Fighter 4 arcade system, uh, even above people like Daigo. So, like, it's, it's, it's very clear. This guy is absolutely one of the best in the world and, and at times has been the best in the world. And it's a little bit sad that the story of this tournament does seem to be that Daigo Umahara came in second place, not that Kazunoku came in first place. Like, it, it seems like this was his big moment, his, his kind of coming out party moment. Uh, but, but he was almost so dominant in this tournament that we didn't get to see him play all that many times. He only played through the winner's bracket, I believe. And so, like, he played, like, probably the fewest matches of, of, of anybody in, like, the, in the top four or top six. It was really incredible just how dominant he really was. Uh, so, he kind of got overlooked, even in even in his finest moment, his grandest victory. But at the same time, I do agree that <laughs> Daigo getting second is a better story. You know, this guy has been around competing at the absolute top level of fighting games for 17 years. Oh, my God. There's nobody even remotely like him in the history of esports as a whole. Not even just fighting games. Esports as a whole. And he's he's kind of unprecedented. He, like, you could compare him to the legends of just sporting in general. Like, he's incredible. And so to see him come out here and really put on a show was absolutely fabulous. You know, I was joking during the tournament that I wanted somebody to go through and make a, stream, a screenshot collage of all of Daigo's opponents just looking sad and confused in between rounds. You know, I've never <laughs> seen a player get more perfect rounds than Daigo did in this particular tournament. He was just just completely baffling these people. He was miles ahead of everybody at this tournament besides Kazunoko. So when we look at these players... Are they playing the same game the the same way? 
like what did we see from them in the, in their respective duels and what sets their play apart from uh, some of the other people that were in that top eight? So one of the coolest things about Ultra Street Fighter 4 right now is, is how like utterly balanced the game is. However, you like if there are so many different ways and strategies for coming at the game that all of these different players play totally differently. It's not the kind of game where we see one play style like, kind of clash up against each other. One or two play styles, like you think of something like um, like Super Smash Brothers. Mm-hmm. There, there is a very clear Marth and Fox are the top two characters, and anybody who doesn't pick Marth or Fox is kind of weird, you know. So, so that's like how that works. But in Super Street Fighter Four, almost everybody in this tournament had their own unique character and their own unique way of of approaching this game. Uh, so. Let's see. So you had Daigo on Evil Ryu. You had Snake Eyes on Zangief. You had uh, Kazunoko on Yun. Everybody has their own way uh, of doing this. And the game is just in such a good spot right now that it allows for all of these talented players to just come and express themselves in their own completely viable way. Uh, So that was the thing that was really noticeable to me. Like that was that everybody could just do their own thing and they could play in their own way. And we got to see their different styles clash against each other. Um, The other thing to me that was really noticeable uh, was I'm going to talk about Daigo again because I, I was actually blown away by him at this tournament. Mm-hmm. I know that I, that's what I said I didn't want to do, but I couldn't. I can't help it. I, I, I was watching Daigo, and it was so much fun to watch this guy um, because he he was using uh, Evil Ryu as his only character, which has become a little bit weird. Most people have a few characters that they swap between based on the the matchups that they're playing up against. Uh, but not only was he playing just one character, but he was continually changing the play style of that character just to keep people off guard, which sounds like a really simple thing. Mm. But it was completely baffling to his opponents because it meant that at no time could anyone gain momentum against him because they knew that if they won one round, he was going to be a completely different person in the next round. And that what they did in that last round was not applicable to the next round. There was no momentum to be found. So nobody could find a strategy that like stuck against Daigo because he would come out, if he, if he felt like he was getting backed into a corner, he would come out with his, these incredibly fast-paced rushdown strategies and just pin people down and, and end the match in like 10 or 15 seconds. It was unbelievable. But then Right after that, he wouldn't do the same thing again to, to, because that would allow them to get a feel for that style. He wants to be able to use that whenever he really needs it. So he would just sit back into these completely suffocating positional defenses, which, like, man, let me tell you, that stuff was so beautiful to watch. Like, watching Daigo just completely own the map and dictate the terms of every single engagement was like watching like an ancient general maneuver mm-hmm. his cavalry out on the field. It was so cool to watch. Like just watching him understand the exact ranges that his opponents needed and could be effective from and just barely deny it to them such that they kept trying to get it, but he wouldn't quite give it to them. It was like having it like a, um, like a, a dollar bill on a fishing pole and he just kept it right out of their reach at all times, just chipping them down. Oh, so good. Is, is that, is that really unusual with, uh, with, with pro, uh, fighting game players? Like I understand most of them tend to specialize in, in one character, uh, but do they also tend to specialize in, you know, one style of play with that character? Uh, is, is Daigo's versatility with, within a character, uh, kind of unusual in by fighting game standards. Um, I, I think it was unusual at this level, you know, and and, and it's like the other thing that I talk about, which, which is uh, the positional play. It's like everybody wants to do positional play, but doing it to that extent 
is unbelievably difficult. And so for Daigo to not just come in and change up his style for aggressive or not aggressive, but to find eight or nine different ways to play uh, is is completely unique and is is completely unique to him. And I I I, I was really shocked to see Kazunoko actually be able to beat him. And it speaks volumes to how good Kazunoko is that I couldn't even figure out how he was able to beat Daigo. Like I I didn't I would I wasn't even able to observe the differences in his play over everybody else's, but it was clearly happening. It was it was really special. So, you know, we for all that I complain sometimes about you know the. Uh, the, the foreigner hope and the parochialism of, of <laughs> esports fandom. Uh, I want to talk about the American because uh, mm-hmm. I probably paid the closest <laughs> attention to the Americans of this tournament, and uh, in particular Snake Eyes, who we talked about a little earlier this year. And I remember uh, when we talked about him, you remarked that him being a Zangief player uh, made him a bit of you know the the equivalent of like a knuckleballer in mm-hmm. in pro right. st- Street Fighter. That Zangief has has not been considered. Uh, a, a really top tier character and the, a lot of people tend to avoid him, but uh, snake Eyes seemed to do really well with him. And I was, I was watching him play and he looked sharp for a lot of this tournament and he had this duel with a, a player named Kioma uh, last night that was I- incredibly yeah. tense at times. Mm-hmm. And actually it had some of the things you were talking about where, you know, one, you know, for a couple of rounds, he was, he was basically uh, rushing down Kioma where he would just like come forward uh, you know, grapple and then just start comboing and just like, you know, knock him out within, again, a few seconds. Kyoma adapts to that and starts turning these matches around. And suddenly Zangief becomes this hyper elusive, really defensive space controlling play, uh, character uh, in, in Snake Eyes' hands. It was really interesting to watch like how suddenly like Snake Eyes realized he was in a different matchup and adapted to that and slowed everything down. And suddenly Kyoma couldn't couldn't break that defense and uh, right. Zangief uh, and and uh, Snake Eyes got the momentum back. So it was it was an incredibly cool it was an incredibly cool series. Uh, but but I have to ask like you know so so how big a deal is a, a top five finish for Snake Eyes? Uh, you know as as an American esports fan, I tend to think that anytime an American like is top eight in an international competition. Uh, you know, it's time for a national day of celebration and Thanksgiving. Uh, but but I'm not familiar with the scene. So did Snake Eyes outperform expectations? Yeah, I mean, well, he, he did, but it was like incremental, right? Like everybody has come to expect great things from from Snake Eyes. Um, he's this like I, when I when we first started talking about him months ago on the show, I I did I remarked him to about him as sort of a knuckleballer, but he's kind of challenging that because he is so consistent and he's been so good for so long that he's no longer that kind of knuckleball. He's no longer really playing that knuckleball character. Like he seems to have really adapted in a very reliable way uh, to who this is, um, and and so like it's not that big of a deal for him. It's an accomplishment. But everybody knows that Snake Eyes was capable of finishing in the top five and threatening the best players in the world. And so for him to have met those expectations is an achievement. But what everybody's waiting for is his breakout performance when he can actually take that next step and make it to a grand finals. Uh, It's certainly progress, but he's he's kind of it felt like an incremental step forward, not like a quantum leap in terms of his career or the American uh, fighting game scene. So this was an important uh, Capcom Cup tournament uh, for another reason, which is that it's it's basically the end of the line for Ultra Street Fighter 4. And, you know, with RTS games, sequels are effectively different games. With 
MOBAs, uh, you know, depending on the patch severity, it can, you know, even a patch can overturn the foundations of a sport, send some players in decline, uh, disrupt teams. Is, is that likely to happen here in Street Fighter as it sort of transitions to Street Fighter V? Well, at this point, we can be relatively certain that Daigo is still going to be around. <laughs> <laughs> like, how many how many different iterations of Street Fighter has this guy managed to stay relevant uh, throughout? It's, it's it's completely unbelievable. Uh, it's as though like the the StarCraft champion right now was a StarCraft One pre Brood War champion or something like that. It's insane. Uh, but like that, to be more direct, like that's a really hard question to answer. It's so. Uh, rare that we actually get to see a new game in one of these fighting game series or in, in street fighter in particular uh street fighter 4 has been the base of this scene since 2008 uh street fighter 3 came out before that in 1997 uh there's not a lot of data on what happens to a fighting game scene when a new game comes out particularly like the um the main pillar of the fighting game scene that street fighter is um I tend to think of it as with fighting games as being kind of like when a medieval king dies and there's a new successor. As long as everyone agrees on a new heir, then it's not that big of a deal. Perfect. But it, <laughs> but it, but if the new heir has is somehow clearly flawed, or if too much of the scene doesn't want to bend their knee, then it can get really complicated. Uh, so Super Smash Brothers is the perfect example of that. Uh, Nintendo screwed up. Uh, Super Smash Brothers brawl in terms of the competitive scene. And as a result, uh, to this day, we still see the 2001 iteration of Super Smash Brothers Melee uh, is still the most popular game in the scene. Uh, and the community is still split between Melee, Brawl, and Smash 4. Uh, it's really not an ideal scenario for that scene. And one wonders how, what heights Super Smash Brothers could rise to if everybody was rallied around one specific game. Uh, but that, that that's almost neither here nor there because i don't think that's going to happen at all in street fighter 5's case everyone is really excited about the transition and capcom like really deeply knows how to make fighting games and there's no doubt in my mind that it's going to be a, a fantastic competitive game it would take like a colossal screw up for people to not transition to street fighter 5 uh and when they do like i think it's going to be great the bones of these games are all sort of the same you know like ryu is still going to play like ryu uh it just takes time for people to to explore all of the new intricacies of these fighting systems and explore some of the new tools at their disposal that kind of mix things up. Well, this is our chance. Uh, this is where this is where we can get those fight sticks, hook them <laughs> up to our PCs, and uh, you know maybe maybe go pro this time. Maybe this time we'll finally get it. Uh, you know, even if you it. don't want to be a pro, like just play the fighting games. They're they're just they're it, things. People get so fixated on on playing at the top level, being really good, that they forget that they're just fun for a weekend or a few days. Actually, this is an aside. Did I see some people at a high level no longer play with the fight sticks? It looked like a few people were That's using correct. controllers. Yeah, no, some, I believe Snake Eyes uses a controller. Um, it, it has changed over the years. It's not as, as fighting games have moved away from the arcade as their central base and moved on to consoles. Um, not everybody uses uh, fight sticks anymore. And the weirdest thing is you'll see people walk up there with keyboards because they play the PC Whoa. version and they don't have controllers. Yeah, you'll see dudes sit down and plug in their USB keyboard and sit down. And they'll use WASD to compete in like the top eight of a major tournament. It's really cool. So I need to get over my hang up about not playing these on my computer. Where like <laughs> I, I can, it can be done. Yeah. Okay. You absolutely can. I, I've played Street Fighter. I use a control pad or a USB fight stick, but I play on on Steam. That's my preferred version. Cool. Uh, so the Capcom Cup was obviously the major esports event of the weekend but i wanted to check in on dota 2 really quickly because something happened that i wasn't really expecting 
Mm-hmm. Team Liquid yeah. won the defense, uh, beating both Alliance and OG on their way to the title. Now, obviously, the defense has diminished a little bit in recent years as more and more money has entered the Dota scene and major production companies have gotten more and more involved. Uh, you know, the defense used to be one of the major events for the Dota 2 scene, a major grassroots event. Uh, and now it's a tournament where you see a lot of the big names sort of electing to skip and uh, and pass yeah. on it. And it's mm-hmm. become a tournament maybe it's a little more appealing to uh, less established, less successful teams. But, you know, it still attracts some pretty significant competition, including our Dota 2 major champions, uh, OG. But this this year, it, it, it sort of seemed like it was a coming out party for Team Liquid. A- Andrew, we talked about how teams that win majors sometimes have a little bit of a hangover and perform poorly in the next tournament. I don't want to read too much then into OG showing you this tournament. Sure, right. Uh, but when we talk about Team Liquid and Alliance, these are some pretty old names in, in Dota. Where do they stand in the pecking order right now? And wait a second, Team Liquid has a Dota team again? <laughs> yeah, the, the Team Liquid. Is, is Fluffin Tom- stuff back? <laughs> no, 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 unfortunately not. Uh, he's a very, very nice guy, by the way. He gave me plenty of good interviews when I was writing about esports. Um, but so, no, uh, this Team Liquid team is a whole different group than the team that made their top eight run at the international. I believe that was 2013 or 2014. I don't remember which year. Um, And then spectacularly imploded not too long after that. Um, So this is a whole new group of people. um, And it actually has a lot in common with this new uh, OG team. You know, they're a squad that is built around a couple of very established veterans, uh, along with some more unknown talent, like some of that raw talent that you pick up from the scene, like these ladder warriors and things like that. Uh, in this case, the most recognizable veteran uh, is uh, Kuroki, who mm-hmm. was a fixture of the, uh, the of the Navi team for years and played alongside Dendi through some of their best years. He's actually he's got a second place finish at the international under his belt. Uh, and Team Liquid also picked up Fata, uh, who is a, a Euro veteran as well. Uh, and this is com- becoming like kind of a, a dominant style for team building. And it looks like Liquid is sort of successfully aping the structure of both Team Secret and OG, who selected like a strong veteran or two uh, to build new organizations around. There's this idea developing that matches youthful talent with like wily veterans. Yeah. And, you know, with... Uh... You know, in the last week, Flash retired from StarCraft, right? And you and you, like you, I am to me at some point during the day. He was like, "Guess you." You were like, "Guess how old Flash is?" And I was like, "35, <laughs> uh, something like that." I don't know. Because we've been hearing about it's Flash. It's the saddest thing in the we've world. We've been hearing the about Flash for years. Flash yeah. has been God since before I got into esports. Yeah. And you were like, "No, he's he's in his early 20s." <laughs> it's the saddest thing in the world if you're if you're an adult who watches esports oh, to just be cheering your your you know your arms off for these 16 year old kids these geriatric 20 year olds yeah. <laughs> yeah so basically when a guy like flash a guy like flash who was super dom- dominant in starcraft they eventually just sort of, he sort of had to admit like starcraft 2 is never going to be his game and it was time to sort of load him onto the ice flow and mm-hmm. float him away <laughs> uh so the rest of the tribe could live on in Dota, you don't see that happening, and I'm, I'm curious, why do you think this approach to building a team is viable in Dota? Because in, in every other esport, uh, a lot of the old players are pretty much on a one-way ticket. Once that decline starts, you know, it it doesn't really turn around. It can, it can like, you can arrest the speed of the decline, 
but mm-hmm. you don't see new successful teams really being built around players whose best days are maybe behind them. Yet in Dota, uh, not only do players like does the median age of players seem to be older, uh, skew a little older, but then also you see now a lot of these newer successful lineups being formed around these older players uh, being supported by a younger cast. Well, I think generally it has to do with the support position in, in Dota. Um, you you have positions in Dota and roles you can fulfill in the game that don't require really almost any incredibly fast-paced Twitch skill. And what you really need from those people, what what the support players like the like the we talk about the four position and the five position, and that that relates to the priority of who gold goes to. So your Twitch players, your your carries are going to be the number one and the number two, and then your four and five are sort of just sitting back making decisions, and that's where these veterans tend to fit. These are characters, or, or these are players who spend more time looking at the minimap than they do looking at, at trying how they're going to get more gold, how they're going to play faster, how they're going to make things happen on the field. And they're going to sit there and they're going to examine the strategic state of the game. They're going to spend a lot of time thinking rather than just acting and trying to get, make things happen on the field. And that's really why there's a, there's a place for this. We saw uh, Fear move into that role a little bit more as he got a little bit older on the, on the Evil Geniuses team after the International Five. Um, and so the, the best example of of how we can... We, how, how we can sort of quantify the benefit of, of having a better a veteran or a two on your team is to look at what happened in game three of the grand finals of the, of the defense this weekend. So Team Liquid wins the third game of that series. They go up two to one uh, on the back of the characters Tiny and Io. Uh, so the Tiny Io combination is really old school Dota. It's something that has always been effective, but people usually forget about it because it's so old, because it's so accepted. Nobody ever really talks about it. You know, the fundamentals of why it works aren't really all that important. We won't really go into it, uh, but it will basically always be good. And a newer player who never sees that combination really wouldn't really know that. But you put some veterans on the team who have played in hundreds of competitive matches and their lexicon of knowledge is so much bigger than a newer player. And they're thinking, you know, what old tricks have worked for me in the past that I might be able to pull out here uh, to give me an advantage. In Dota, I think it's just it's so absolutely essential to have a veteran around who can make a sly little choice to throw a wrench in the spokes of the other team's plan uh, who can give you that sort of strategic edge. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah, that third game was was really interesting because, you know, you'd just seen uh you you just seen OG win a pretty convincing uh game and then uh Team Liquid gave them the same the, the same picks basically right. didn't even didn't even try to didn't even yeah. try to fight with it which is kind of unusual like because that that second game had, had been pretty rough for for liquid so you'd expect they wouldn't want to see that again but immediately like you know both teams made their first two picks within like a split second uh yeah. it was like clearly like they set up uh og for fine we'll we'll do a rematch we'll we'll do the same thing and then you saw you you saw liquid sort of bring out those sort of unexpected picks uh, that really changed well, the complexion of that series. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that has, it has to do with the unique character of Dota, where if you you're if you live, give somebody the same picks two games in a row, it's not really the same lineup because your lineup is going to be different. They have to play it and respond in, in a different way. So it's really almost irrelevant that they have the same characters on their team because they can't use them in the exact same mm-hmm. way. And so you know, it it, it just becomes a. a, a 
I almost like the choice to give people the same lineup a second time because that way you understand their strategy. You control you, variable. You've just seen it. Yeah, you know exactly what they're going to try to do and how they're going to use those characters. And so that that becomes a strategic benefit, I think. Uh, so moving on to League of Legends, you know, League of Legends may be between seasons right now, but that hasn't prevented some major controversy uh, as Riot have announced a massive overhaul of the production of Korea's premier League of Legends tournament, the LCK. Uh, Riot Korea have announced uh, in conjunction with Kespa that the 2016 LCK season will be broadcast on both OGN and SPO TV. Uh, but the reaction from fans and OGN has been extremely hostile. Since Riot first floated this idea, and not for the first time, you know, Riot find themselves accused of high-handed, overbearing approach to esports management. You know, Riot, or, excuse me, Rob, there are always some complaints about Riot and the way they run Pro League of Legends. But this seems like an unusual turn of events in that the moves appear to be universally loathed. You know, why has this turned out to be, you know, the third rail of League of Legends esports? Uh there's a couple things going on here. First of all, it's a, it's a little bit like it's the right battle at the right time. Uh, mm-hmm. There's like this isn't it's not just about OGN and uh, the the LCK. There's other sort of resentments that have built up over the years that that are sort of being exercised here. Uh, but then this is also a clear case of Riot are messing with success. And they're messing with a very special kind of success. OGN created the pro League of Legends scene in Korea. Uh, and this is this is kind of an important difference. Uh, in the in the in the West, uh, Riot always had a pretty significant hand in steering the development of that scene. You know, after season two, basically, of League of Legends, uh, Riot had basically taken uh, North America and Europe in hand. And were sort of, you know, astroturfing a really robust uh, professional landscape mm-hmm. into into NA and EU. In Korea, that didn't happen, and more importantly, it didn't need to happen because what OGN had created with uh, I don't even think it was the LCK back then. I want to say it was just a OGN Champions uh, series. Uh, what they had created was basically a successor to the kind of esport that Brood War represented sure, uh, years right. ago. So they had gotten a lot of the same uh, teams involved. Uh, they had created, they had recreated a lot of the same hype and investment that existed in sort of the glory days of Brood War. They created that for League of Legends as well. So that's where you had, you know, you had two you have two Samsung teams appearing, you have two uh SK Telecom teams appearing. You have all these major sponsors getting involved. And from that, you get a really incredible competitive scene. Uh and it probably reached its peak last year. Uh and this is this is kind of where maybe some of the resentment that we're seeing now really begins to build. Mm-hmm. Because last year it was a completely Korea-dominated season of League of Legends, and there was never even a question as to whether or not a Korean team was going to win it or even be challenged. And one reason for that is that all the big teams were running A and B teams, uh, sister teams. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you had Samsung Blue and Samsung White. Uh, you had, you know, SK Telecom, uh, T1, uh, S and there was there they had another they, they designated the support team differently, but the main thing here is that 
the big organizations could basically run two world-class rosters simultaneously. <laughs> right. And it pushed Korean League of Legends to really unbelievable heights. If, if you watched any of the uh, Korean tournaments in, 20, uh, in 2014, uh, it was just unbelievable to see how far the sister teams could push each other. Because remember, you know, any player who wasn't pulling his weight could always be sent down to the B team. And players on the B team could be pushed up to the A team. There were interesting team dynamics, uh, politics, chemistry issues. It was a fascinating league to follow. And then Riot, last year decide no 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 we need to get rid of these sister teams we need to make it more like the lcs where only one 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 organization can own one team it'll be more fair which and i think this is really where a lot of the resentment we're seeing now is coming from it was the <laughs> first time riot had basically come in and told the korean esports scene which I'd like to think, and I think a lot of people like to think, kind of know what's up and know how know what works and know how to run their <laughs> yeah, yeah, affairs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Riot comes in and says, "No, you gotta you, you gotta get rid of them. Uh, you gotta get rid of of your second teams." And there's not that many premier sponsors in in Korea, right? Like you know, you, there's not going to be someone who's going to step up and fill the the role that like a Samsung was able to fill. Right, right. And so by making that decision. Yeah, you got more names into League of Legends. You changed the corporate makeup of League of Legends. Uh, but you also created a lot of teams that, you know, what we talk when we talk about Pro League, right? There's teams that matter and there's teams that are there to fill out the numbers. And they right. created a little mm -hmm. bit of that in Korea as well. Uh, and, and so, you know, that was probably the, the, the first major strike against, uh, against Riot's management in, in Korea. And the other thing here is that Riot... We're kind of consciously trying to make Korea more like another LCS region where players are guaranteed a certain level of income. Uh, the Korean system, which I will be fair, a lot of Korean esports tournaments can have a slightly Baroque structure. <laughs> it can be really hard to follow if you, if you haven't <laughs> sort of uh, internalized its rules. But they, so they wanted to make it more like the LCS. And that continues this year with uh, Riot deciding that they want to split up the broadcast, uh, which is a little different in that with the LCS, Riot is the broadcaster. You know, right. Riot runs those streams. Right. In Korea, what they're doing is they're taking OGN, who for about, you know, 10 years have been sort of the premier uh, esports production house company broadcaster in Korea. Uh, they're taking OGN and they're, at some point in 2016, apparently, they're going to basically cut their contribution in half and say you're going to broadcast half the games uh, in the LCK. Mm -hmm. And the other half will be broadcast by Spo TV, which I have no problems with Spo TV. You and I, I think, are both kind of fans because yeah. they've done great, great work on StarCraft lately. Yeah. But you're messing with a really, really good broadcast and you're sort of artificially creating competition. And this is kind of Riot's argument as well. This competition will be good. Competition will force both uh, producers to, to sort of raise their game and it'll be good for, uh, it'll be good for, for viewers. But I think if, you know, you look at the bigger picture here, what's really happened? Um, OGN invested a lot in building up League of Legends. And now Riot are kind of using their position and their, you know, ownership of, of the game to 
kind of take away a lot of the gains that OGN's investment, you know, they're, they're sort of mm-hmm. stealing the return yeah. on that investment a little bit and sort of cannibalizing it uh, for their own ends. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the, I'm not sure that's a healthy recipe because on the one hand, yeah, you have competition. On the other hand, the clear lesson from all this is you can do whatever you want, but at the end of the day, Riot owns this game and Riot will tell you how the broadcasts are going to be. And I think that's really dangerous. Yeah, so like what the problem is that I get what I have with all of this is that I, I I just don't I don't hear cause from from Riot. I just don't quite understand why they're doing this. Like why are they trying to fix what ain't broke? Yeah, and so this is something that bothered me as well. I I, I went on Twitter before we recorded and asked if anyone uh really knew the good argument for uh Riot's moves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so Freak was Freak was on uh, Reddit at some point trying to defend the move. Uh, but even Freak's argument, which is that it, it makes it a little easier on players uh, and sort of stabilizes the schedule and creates a better streaming experience. All these things are really like these are really minor problems. These are really minor right. issues in the, in the case of Korean law that. I'm not sure this new scheme really addresses like they're talking about one one objection, right? Is that because the LCK ran head to head matches, the people waiting to play the second match had it rough because they didn't know when they'd be playing, right? Mm -hmm. A a League of Legends match can take 20 minutes. It can take over an hour. And so it was really stressful and difficult on teams because if you were on the second uh, game, uh, if you were if you were sort of the undercard, as it were, uh, it was it was difficult to schedule around. And I'm kind of looking at that like, who cares? Like right. this is like right. this is esports. Like just the idea that something will run roughly according to a schedule should be cause for celebration. <laughs> but I don't think like the idea of oh no, we aren't going to be able to get out there right on the dime because these other two teams are are still playing. I think it's preposterous that this is a major problem as a viewer. It wasn't a major problem. This is the other thing. They're mm-hmm. trying to sort of spin it as, well, this is good for viewers. Because now you'll be able to watch, uh, you'll, you'll know exactly when that second game is going to start on SPO TV. Mm-hmm. And it'll run according to a schedule. And again, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like y- Most right. people are going to tune in for the, the evening broadcast of the eSport. And, the, and you can sort of, and if I don't want to watch the first game, I'll... Tune in like you know after forty minutes and catch the end of the first game, and I'll be sure to catch the second. These are small problems that don't really justify such a yeah. far-reaching um, right. revision. And it also kind of has that that stink of a move that is seems clearly like this will this is the explanation that will make us seem like the good guys. Like no one's going to argue with us trying to advocate for better treatment of players. Everybody's going to like that explanation, but it also doesn't necessarily map up with with the moves that they're making because like it's hard to imagine like a boardroom at Riot Games where all the the the, the big wigs of Riot Esports get together and like we have to make it better for players. We have to make the their experience in the waiting room much more pleasurable, you know, like and then to do so we have to make this brash business move and fly in the face of precedent, you know, and and potentially anger one of our partners. Like that just doesn't seem like it lines up to me. No, and and that's the other thing. It's, it's interesting you mentioned angering a partner because it's rare you see a Korean organization sort of publicly flip a table. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's basically what OGN have done. Uh, they basically came out with a statement of their own in response to Riot's statement. Because the way Riot spun this uh, initially, Riot, Riot Korea spun this as, 
well, we've all talked, and here's what we think is the best move. And OGN basically comes out with a statement and says, wait, when, when did we ever talk? Like, no. we, we talked, uh. but not about this. Yeah. Uh, so it, you know, it's it's kind of unusual to see see a you know Korean organization basically you know draw a line in the sand and say this is absolutely not what we want. We we object strongly to this, uh, and we're going to fight it. So it's a really weird and kind of upsetting situation because I think Riot's contributions, particularly in the West, from from my perspective, have pretty much been if not inarguably good, I think by and large, you can say that they ba the balance is tilted heavily toward the positive. Their influence mm -hmm. has been overwhelmingly positive. They run a great broadcast. Uh, they've created a lot of stability and a really interesting scene. It's, it's fascinating to follow uh, LCS, League of Legends. That's great. But this is a case where you had something even better that Riot had no hand in. And Riot are sort of exert, trying to exert this ownership over it. Uh, and their first steps are don't seem aimed at making the game, the pro scene better mm -hmm. as much as they seem aimed at establishing who's actually boss. And guess what? It's it's Riot. Sure. Yeah. And my kind of like my final little question here about this is that when we talked about um, the time that Riot stipulated that, that Korean teams could only have one roster at a time, I believe you described it as a kneecapping of the Korean uh, League of Legends scene. Uh, and and it, it's, it almost seemed like the, uh, the objective was to slow them down so that the rest of the world could catch up and that we could have a healthy international scene. You know, is there any chance that what they're doing is trying to enforce themselves on Korea to try to make sure that every other region is up to par? <laughs> I don't think I don't think you can interpret these moves in that light because it's so it's it's completely or, orthogonal to the issue of regional quality, right? Sure. It's it's just not it's it's not the same thing. This is this is so much about broadcasting uh, and not really aimed at the competitive landscape that I don't think it's it, it, you could you could argue that in general Riot's interest has been to try to uh, keep things on a on a roughly even keel. But right now, it's, you know, with, with the competitive landscape in Korea, uh, Riot's influence is basically to sort of, ha yeah, Harrison Bergeron, the entire Korean scene, right? <laughs> Where it's like, hey, you, you guys are really fast. Here, have some lead, here, have some lead sneakers. Wow, Analogy of the year. Analogy of the year. Oh, that was good. Yeah, and no, it's terrible. I was reading this story earlier today where, like, apparently some of the best teams in, in Korean law uh, who finished really strongly this year uh, but happened not to be... Uh, the top like happen not to be you know some of the major corporate teams. Yeah, uh, they're having trouble uh, attracting uh, decent sponsorship because there aren't mm -hmm. that many great sponsors. So these right. these players who would have once been part of the Samsung or you know SK family, uh, you know they're sort of out in the cold. And what's what's been the result? Well, more transfers between regions. Uh, which you know maybe right. works out well for the other regions, but hasn't been great for Korea. So I, I think there's there's a lot of issues right now. Uh, there's a lot of concern with the way Riot are comporting themselves, specifically with regard to Korea. Uh, and I think that's why this has become a major controversy. That a lot of the things people always like said about Riot, the people who are really skeptical and cynical about Riot, always had these accusations that Riot were overbearing. That Riot mm -hmm. were completely self-interested and would use and discard partners to suit themselves. 
and probably until this week, right? Until this last week, you could have said, well, by and large, right, we're always focused on the greater good. Mm-hmm. And now with these moves in Korea, it starts to look like those critics were right all along. Yeah, it, it does have the feeling like Riot has kind of fulfilled their destiny and becoming like the dark lord of esports that everybody kind of like looks at as the bad guy or, or whatever. And it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Anyway, that concludes our look at esports today. Uh, but now it's time to talk about esports tomorrow. And we're running out of esports. Uh, but we have one last big Counter-Strike tournament yeah. with the ESL, ESEA Pro League Season 2 Finals this weekend. Uh, now, because this is a tournament with European and North American divisions, these league playoffs feature kind of an odd mix of teams. Uh, on the one hand, you've got former T- the, the former TSM squad. I think they've left TSM, and they're, they're now just a roster without an organization. You've sure. got Fnatic. You've got Navi. Uh, you've got Envious, and hey, who knows? Maybe Luminosity is going to be able to sort of build on on what we yeah, saw last nice. week. So so far, nice. so World Championship, right? Like that's like <laughs> yeah. ever great. You got a great. That's that's great. What's the rest of the eight teams? Team Liquid, Conquest, and CLG. Yeah, it it, it kind of has the feeling of like you remember in 2012 when they had the uh, the the for the first BlizzCon StarCraft II tournament. And it was split up so that you you had slots between regions, and so you had the the all, like the five or six heavy hitters from South Korea, like the best players in the world. But then you had like the, the best players in the world from like Western California or something like yeah. that, like these really like regional superstars who just don't stack up against the others. And it, it feels like one of those older style esports tournaments that it's really good in its heart and it's good for the scene, but it's not good to watch because you know spoiler alert envious is going to mop the floor with liquid that's just going to happen and if they don't find whatever will that that maybe there's a, a fluke that happens there but i would be now really, you know what really i'm hoping surprised. for for this with this weekend <laughs> now you know like i'm like oh please god please god let that it's happen. an example it's an example i don't know i don't know if that's going to happen i don't know that much about counter-strike but like this by and large if you look at the average of of these kinds of games those first teams you mentioned are going to obliterate the North American teams. And the, the the upside of it, you know, you may not want to tune into those matches. They may not be that exciting. They may not have that high level of play. But it is good for the North American scene. Like they get to get some practice against these high level teams in a land setting and play in, in, in these sort of... Uh, high-profile events and and get some experience and maybe have a chance to actually make a, a, a decent amount of money. Uh, so it is good, even if it's not necessarily the best thing to watch. Yeah, and definitely, I think it, it, I think this still has the makings of a of a really strong tournament. So hopefully, we can we can see those teams overperform a little a little bit. Worst case scenario, you know, envious fanatic. That's all I need. Let's 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 get those teams clashing yeah. once again. Now I need to go frantically Google to make sure that Envious didn't lose to Liquid in the last tournament. That, that I think they actually did lose to Liquid last week. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I'll be very embarrassed if that's the case. I don't, I don't think they did. I, I don't think things got quite that dire. Uh, but but you should you should Google that. Yeah. Uh, so then you'll know we'll that do. you botched it and uh, that people are not giving you an earful before the next show. We'll issue a correction in the New York Times. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, either next week or or maybe the week after, we're probably going to uh, wind down the year on the show with sort of a yeah. uh, mm-hmm. retrospective of sort of the highlights of, of the year and our favorite moments. Because, uh, you know, it's crazy. There have been, there've been a lot of episodes. I look back through them. I remember some of the conversations we had. And I'm thinking, 
oh wow that was an amazing that was like a top that was a top five esports moment for me yeah. and i think at this yeah. point i have like 30 top five esports <laughs> moments so uh, it'll be good to sort of revisit some of them and talk about some of the, the yeah. highlights of the year yeah, you know, I think that's what we're going to be doing a little bit in December is kind of zooming out a little bit, talking not just about the year, but talking about like our experiences overall in esports, because we're going to get to a point where the sort of current events style of the show isn't necessarily uh, going to be quite as interesting. Like we, we've been so blessed to have every single episode of the show so far be focused on some really incredible competition. Uh, but as we move forward, we might have to amend that style. Anyway, that concludes this week's edition of Esports Today, an Idle Thumbs Network podcast produced by Michael Hermes. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode and esports in general with our community at esports.today. We also really love getting your questions. Like, it's really awesome when we get them in our inbox. We love reading them. Uh, so if you would love to, if you'd like to send us a question, please do so at questions at esports.today. You can also follow us on Twitter at ES2D Podcast. If you've enjoyed esports today so far and you have a few spare minutes, you can really help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and telling your esports buddies about us. We'll be back next week to discuss the past, present, and future of esports. For Andrew Gruen, this is Rob Zachney signing off. Oh, that one went down smooth.